So I was, uh, back in the fall, drawn to the idea of this hike I saw online to the top of Guadalupe Mountain. It's in Guadalupe Mountains National Park, and the reason I really wanted to do this is because Guadalupe Peak, which is in Guadalupe Mountains National Park out in like far west Texas, is the highest elevation point in Texas. And there's a little monument up there. You can get your picture taken next to it. And, um, you know, if you're a true Texan, you understand that like there may be higher mountains on the planet, but being at the highest point in Texas is like being on top of the world, essentially. Um, so I wanted to make this hike, and I didn't want to do it alone. So um, I took my son, Jackson, with me, and also invited David and Kinsler Watkins. And those guys came along. You can see their picture there um, on that side, on, the, on your far right, I guess. And uh, we actually backpacked and camped, like tent camped, almost near the summit of the mountain, about a mile down. It's about a... Uh, Eight and a half mile hike, 3,000 foot elevation gain. It was like, I've done a little bit of hiking before, but this was like, this was a challenge for sure. Um, One of the ways I knew it was going to be a challenge was because of all the warnings we had. And weather did turn out to be somewhat of an issue. There was uh, 75 mile an hour winds um, raking across the mountain while we were up there. David had a little, I remember he had this little lantern hanging from his tent poles inside his tent and the wind was so strong it was collapsing our tent and that thing became like a little miniature wrecking ball like smacking him in the head all night as he was trying to sleep but on, on a hike like that man it's, it's not like a normal thing I was used to um, and I got the impression that it was going to be maybe a little bit more than I bargained for when we were checking in because you have to go into this visitor center station where you get your permit all those kinds of things and there are just warnings everywhere. Like the, the, the sense you get is you're probably going to die, um, but you might make it. You know, There's a chance that you will survive this thing. Um, there's just all these warnings. There's a lot about bringing enough water because there's no water up there. So you have to pack in tons of water to cook with, to drink, all those kinds of things. Um, but most of it is about the weather. And so I, I looked up some of the warnings. I didn't bring home a pamphlet, but I remember them going over these things. But this is directly from their website. This is what they tell you before you climb this thing. Weather in the mountains can be unpredictable. I don't know how you plan for that, right? I mean, anything could happen. And then right after that, the next sentence says this, make sure to check the weather before leaving for your hike. I guess they hadn't read the first sentence, the guy that wrote the second sentence, because it's like, why bother, right? Then it talks about carrying plenty of water, and then it says this about the wind, because it gets super windy up there. It says, hiking on open trail will be challenging if the wind speed is at 40 miles an hour. Remember when we got down, we found out it was 75 If the wind speeds are up to 50 miles an hour, it's dangerous to continue for even experienced hikers. I've been called a lot of things in my life. Experienced hiker is not one of those things. If the wind speeds exceed 55 miles per hour, then you should turn back immediately. You would think that would be where the sentence ends, right? I mean, there should be a period there, but it keeps going. If you don't want to risk an accident. So I guess the thinking there is, now, if you do want to risk an accident, but by all means, right, hike away. Then it goes on to say 70-mile-per-hour wind gusts are the equivalent of an F1 tornado. So I can officially say that I survived a tornado on top of Guadalupe Mountain one night. Um, that's, it, w- it was pretty rough, but 
you know, there's all these warning signs. And as we were there going through all that, listening to all that, reading all these things, I was looking at David and I'm like, man, should we be doing this? Like, this sounds like uh, this may be a little different than what I, what I had it pictured in my mind. But one of the things that gave me comfort is while we were there, before we started, there were people going up and coming down, like tons and tons of people, right? And you get the idea that, right, look, that this is very dangerous. The risk is very real, but it's not something that people can't do, right? It's something that's attainable. It can be accomplished. But there are some real risks, right? This isn't like doing a little two-mile trail at Squabble Creek, right, in Rockwall. This is, this is a little more intense with a little more risk than that. And that's what we see in this text this morning is the author telling us that there should be a real sense of awareness of a certain danger we have as Christians. And that danger is the very real possibility that you and I or anyone else who's following Jesus might one day not be. That there is a very real risk that we might fall away from the Lord. That's why he says, let us fear. There's two, there's two commands in this passage, one through 11, one at the beginning and one at the end. The one at the beginning says, let us fear then what the end says, let us strive. And everything in between is basically descriptions and examples of why we should fear and why and how we should strive, what we should strive towards. So that's how we're going to outline our sermon this morning is let us fear and let us strive. So this first command, let us fear, we see it in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And the first thing I want to point out is that many of us have a temptation to just kind of see these passages where there's a warning of, of not having final salvation, and we just kind of dismiss them. And I think a lot of that comes down to our background. And maybe this isn't you, but I, I have a feeling there's probably a lot of you that, like me, maybe grew up in a church where the idea of once saved, always saved was very heavily emphasized. I know the church I went to, man, they, they beat that drum, they taught that doctrine, and I'm thankful for it because that's... That's a doctrine we need to hear. It's a doctrine we need to remember because all of us have a temptation from time to time to start thinking and slipping into this mindset. And in order for God to really approve of me and accept me, I've got to do a lot of good things. My good works need to kind of outweigh my bad works. And the gospel message just basically destroys that scale and says that there is nothing any of us could do to be in a right relationship with God. That's why Jesus came paid the price for us, did the work we couldn't do to reconcile us back to God. And that once God has given us his Holy Spirit, it is a seal guaranteeing our inheritance and that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, right? We need to hear that reminder. But if you're like me, you may have grown up in a context when any verse that seemed to maybe say something other than that was quickly dismissed and we would spend more time explaining what those verses don't mean than we would be explaining what they do mean. And I think there's a risk for that for us, that if we hold to this doctrine of once saved, always saved, and we should, there's a risk that kind of inherently comes with that. That there's a temptation to spend so much time explaining what verses like Hebrews 4.1 are not saying that we can completely miss what they are saying. And friends, these warning passages are not in our scriptures for us to brush them aside because they conflict with our idea of how salvation works. They're there because all believers are called to walk in a healthy fear of falling away from the Lord. 
and I say a healthy fear. I think this, this fear of falling away from the Lord, of abandoning our faith, it shouldn't be a fear that rocks our confidence. It shouldn't be the kind of fear that we're just constantly shaking and on edge, wondering if we're really in God's favor or not. It's not a fear that attacks our confidence. It should be a fear that fills us with concern. It should be a fear that gives us a lack of complacency, not a lack of confidence. John Calvin said it this way. He said, The fear which is here recommended is not that which shakes the confidence of faith, but such as fills us with concern that we grow not torpid with indifference. Now, I know what the word torpid means, and I, I knew it, I've known it for a long time. I use the word torpid all the time, but just in case some of y'all didn't know what it means, I decided to do a little research and look up the meaning of that word that uh, Calvin used there, or rather the, the translator used. Um, so, looked up the meaning of the word torpid, and most of the definitions point back to, like, as a synonym, hibernation, right? So, you think of torpid, think of, like, a bear sleeping endlessly in a cave, right? Like the definition of like prolonged idleness. So that's what he's saying right here is that this fear that we have should shake us out of that. It should, it should give us a sense that we can't be indifferent, that we can't be idle in our faith, that we can't just believe in Jesus and then hit the cruise button and coast along. Romans 12, 2 talks about this and the idea that if we are not actively transformed, we will be passively conformed. Look at this, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, I remember a sermon I heard Scott Sutton preach about this verse, and he was making this point, the point that if we are not actively conformed to the will and purposes of God, we will be passively, sorry, if we're not actively transformed into God's image, we will be passively conformed into the pattern of this world. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, you, you probably know this even just by experience, that we do not just kind of automatically become more like Jesus because we've placed our faith in him at some point. Right? If anything, if we kind of try to live on cruise control without intentional pursuit of knowing and following Jesus more closely, what happens is not that we drift in idleness, but that we drift away from the Lord and towards the desires of the flesh. And that's why the author of Hebrews is saying that falling away from the faith is a very real possibility, and Christians should walk in some manner of fear of that happening. And he compares his audience to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, right? He says, look, these people, they were the people of God. They, they came out of Egypt as God's people. They they've believed and trusted as they walked through the Red Sea that the waters wouldn't collapse upon them. They trusted God, but as soon as they got into the wilderness, they stopped believing. And because of that, they did not enter into the destination God had set up for them. They started out strong but then their faith dropped off. And the, the author of Hebrews is saying, look what happened to them and know that could happen to you too. The possibility is very real. Many of you have maybe even seen this, right? You've maybe known someone who began strong in the faith, was following Jesus by all outward appearance. This person was in Christ, was in the church, was with God's people doing godly things, but later on in life, through the course of events or time or whatever, lost their faith. 
and have renounced Jesus and are no longer following him. What could happen in that situation could happen to us. And so that, that does raise a difficulty, right? If we believe in what's saved, always saved, or the more traditional name for that doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, that those who are in Christ will persevere to the end. If we truly believe that, how can we hold that and also hold to this doctrine that we have to be careful not to fall away? One of the verses that I think helps us make sense of this is 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, They went out from us. Think about these people that they left the faith, they left the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. When I was in college, um, I was interested in this girl, and she was doing an internship at a church out in Lubbock. So before I, I met Emily, and I um, was interested in dating her, kind of pursuing her. So I flew out there to see her, and this church seemed a little different to me, like it seemed a little odd when she would describe it and explain what they were teaching her and things like this. Just had some little minor yellow flags as she would describe that. And those ye- yellow flags quickly turned into red flags while I was there. I sat through three different sermon or Bible study type things from three different people in that church, and all three of them kept hammering this same idea. Um, And in the third session I was in was a small group setting where there was opportunity to interact, and the guy basically stood it this way. They're talking about what it means to be saved, Um, and they said, These are the classic cross bridge illustrations. Maybe you guys have seen this. If you haven't, let me just lay it out. Imagine there's kind of a mountain over here, and we're over here, right? And then there's a big gap, a big canyon, and over here is God. And so the idea is because of sin, man is separated from God, and man cannot bridge the gap. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves back in a right relationship with God. There's a separation there. And they taught that, well, Jesus came, you know, and he, he, he paid the penalty for us so that he could create a bridge, and they wrote the word faith on that bridge. And so by faith in Jesus, we can move from being enemies of God to being friends of God, being reconciled to him. And then he, all sounds really good, right? But then this is the teaching they kept coming back to. And he said this, and even once we're here, once we have confessed faith in Jesus and we have crossed over into being friends of God, reconciled to him, now even if we lose our faith, even if that bridge is torn down and we turn away from the Lord, we are still found in him and we are still his. And I was thinking, uh, no. So I finally had to speak up, even though this is an older guy, and I was a very young man at the time. I was like, well, what do you do with all of these passages about the need to persevere to the end in our faith in order to be saved? And they didn't have an answer for that. They just they kept kind of coming back to this illustration because what had happened is they had built this kind of systematic theology in their mind of this idea that once you said this thing or prayed this prayer or did this thing, now you're good. And friends, any any doctrine we might hold, regardless of we, the two things seem to conflict and reconcile, right? It's going to be hard to reconcile. Any, any doctrine we would hold that denies the legitimacy of these warnings is not a biblical way of approaching our faith. Any, any systematic theology we would hold to that, that teaches that, that teaches that you do not have to endure in your faith in the end to be saved is contrary to what the Scripture teaches, It is God's intent that we would walk with an awareness of the very real danger and very real possibility that later on in life we could turn away from God 
and shipwreck our faith. That's why he's saying, let us fear. He's not saying, let us fear so we can go, but we really have nothing to be afraid of. He's saying, let us have a little bit of a healthy fear that if we don't do certain things, we might fall away from the Lord and abandon our faith and not be saved. Then the second command in this text, as I said earlier, is let us strive. Let us strive. Because we are carrying some measure of fear that we could, we could fall away, let us then in response to that strive, press in to know the Lord and pursue him. The posture of the Christian should not be such that we're so confident in our salvation that we need not strive in order to reach it. The posture should not be because I did A, B, and C, I'm good to go. It should be I am trusting in Jesus, believing the gospel, and I must continue on in that faith lest I fall away. We are never instructed to view falling away as an impossibility we are called to strive and hold fast to our faith. One of the best examples I can give of this is, is the life of Paul. Um, one of the cool things about the life of Paul is that we have letters that he wrote at different stages and periods in his life. Early on in his ministry, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. And then many years later, he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. And what you see in these verses we're about to look at is a very different attitude Paul has towards his salvation um, given the stage of life that he's in. So 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says this, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So you know what Paul's saying there? He's like, this sounds like striving, right? I discipline my body. I keep it under control. I, I work hard to say no to the things that I know are contrary to God's will that I'm drawn to, to say no to my flesh, to maintain self-control and work to pursue knowing the Lord. Why? Because I don't want to run into this situation where after preaching this gospel to others, I myself would then fall away and be disqualified. Paul has some of that healthy fear we see in the book of Hebrews displayed in 1 Corinthians. But I want us to see how that changes. When Paul is near the end of his life, writing the book of 2 Timothy, the last book we have from Paul, essentially on his deathbed, on death row, awaiting execution, listen to how he says it. 2 Timothy 4.6 for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Friends, that's the, that's the goal we should all be striving for, right? Is that we would come to the end of our days if we should be in a situation where we know the end is near. That we would be able to say with Paul, when death is knocking at the door, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. But until then, there is striving to be done. There is work to do to stay within the will of God. Richard D. Phillips is a commentator we've been using a lot. He's a fantastic commentator in the book of Hebrews. And he says it this way. Indeed, running the race to the end is the hallmark of genuine saving faith while falling away is the mark of a spurious faith that does not lead to salvation. 
So what are we striving for exactly? When we talk about striving, because the scriptures say, let us strive to enter his rest, which is kind of an ironic choice of words, right? Striving to enter his rest. Or maybe you felt that way. Some of you guys like, you know, maybe you're a very type A personality and you kind of get your energy from working and pressing into things and achieving things. And then if there's ever a day where like you're just supposed to rest, it's like it's harder to rest than it is to work because you're so used to working. So you have to strive to rest. But the scriptures say that, that just as God rested from his works on the seventh day of creation, everything was done and he just kind of was like, it's done, I'm going to rest now, that we should in the same way rest from our works. In other words, we all, we all have a temptation to want to work to earn God's favor, to do things, to put ourselves in right standing with God by our own merit, by our own works. And the author of Hebrews is saying, just as God rested from his works, we ought to rest from our works knowing and believing that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us already. It's a lot like that song we just sang of, I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. Right? That's the, the position we are in, find ourselves in as Christians, is that we are trusting that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, but we recognize we have to fight to continue in that belief. So how do we do that? What does this striving look like? It's really just all the things you already know. I mean, it's all the standard disciplines and practices of a Christian. It's prayer. It's being in God's word. It's gathering with God's people. And friends, all those things have a component to which by them, we are deepening our walk with God. We are getting to know him better, right? I mean, I come in here Sunday mornings and I love our worship time together. The band does a fantastic job leading us in that. Singing the songs just declaring the greatness of God where we just get to remember and respond to the Lord's goodness and faithfulness and greatness and just kind of bask in how great he is. And through that, we get to know God better and we follow him more closely. Same thing for scripture reading. As we read God's word, we're listening to what he said, growing in our understanding and being motivated to follow and draw near to him. All those things are happening to make us more godly, but at the same time, they're also happening to keep us from falling away. There are measures of provision that we strive towards with an awareness that if we don't anchor ourselves in these things, there is a very real possibility that we would fall away from the Lord and shipwreck our faith and not be saved. We are striving because we are aware of the warning. And then lastly, I want us to consider another charge. There's, not a, there's only two commands in this passage. But the common theme in it is the idea of belief. Belief is mentioned multiple times. That what we are striving toward, towards is continuing to believe. Just the verse above, chapter 4, verse 1, Hebrews 3, 19 says this. Talking about Israel wandering in the wilderness. It says and that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Lance talked about this when he preached on that passage that Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness. They sent the spies out to the land. Ten of them came back like, no, no, those guys are too big. We can't do it. They didn't believe God was able to deliver them into the land even after they had all, all they had seen. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it says this, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. It is through faith and belief that we enter the rest of God. And then you do have this verse in 4.6 when it says they failed to enter because of disobedience. But if you look at that in context of the entire section here, what you see is that that disobedience was nothing more than a natural fruit or result of their unbelief. Which is why I think one of the things we have to take away from this passage is just an encouragement to keep believing in Jesus. Keep putting our faith in him. That's why he says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, if the Lord is convicting you, do not harden your hearts. There's a concept in Scripture, especially in Jesus' teachings in the New Testament, where the return of Jesus to earth is compared to a harvest time. Um, imagine you're a farmer, right? And you've got a big, a big field, and let's just say you're, you're growing wheat, and all the wheat is yay high, right? And it's the heads are nice and tall, and it's ready to be harvested, right? And so you've got your, your wheat crop, you're the farmer, you're looking out, okay, everything looks ripe, it's gold, it's, it's time, right? The weather's right, so you come through with your combine and you, you pick up all the wheat. Well, what happens to, to the piece of wheat that was a little shorter and the header of the combine passed right over it? You missed the boat, right? It's it's too late. The time has come and gone. Friends, that's what the scripture teaches about the return of the Lord Jesus. Is that today there is still time. Today there is still time to believe in Jesus and entrust him with our hearts and for our salvation. But there is coming a day when that time will have come and gone and it will be too late. We will have missed our chance. The same commentator, Philip, says this about this text. He says, If you have been attending church, listening to the gospel as it is preached, and perhaps enjoying the music and the lovely setting, I think he had this backdrop in mind when he wrote the lovely setting, but have not personally put your trust in Christ, you are in great peril. Do not delude yourself by thinking you are neutral or even a promising situation, for you are not. Until you receive Christ as your Savior, you are a rebel against the gospel you have heard. You are excluded from God's rest and under his wrath. You must believe the gospel and rest upon Christ's saving work for you. I just have to say, like, as a pastor, preparing sermons, right, looking at these these passages and thinking, how am I going to unpack this and explain this and really drive this home um, to our folks? I'm 99% of the time I'm thinking about how that's going to come across to people who are believing. But I want to be careful not to make the mistake and false assumption that everyone in this room listening to this would identify themselves as a Christian, as someone who is believing in Jesus, because it's just probably not true. There are probably some of you in this room right now, definitely over the course of three services, who may not be believing in Jesus. 
And so if that's you, I just, I just want to personally plead with you and tell you, like, the water is warm. Look around you. Ask any of these people in this room, hey, is following Jesus the best decision you've ever made in your life? 99% of them are going to say yes. Choosing to follow and believe in Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to me. And if you're wondering where you stand with God, friends, that the message of the gospel that Jesus brought is that you do not need to work for God's approval. You only need to believe in the purchasing power of Jesus' blood. In fact, the, the scriptures describe the cross that way in transactional terms, that when Jesus died on the cross, a purchase was made. That we were enslaved to sin, captive, unable to free ourselves and bring ourselves back into the presence of God. We were, we were, in, we were captured, we were slaves, but that God sent his son Jesus to pay a ransom price for our freedom. And the currency of that payment was his blood. He came to die. He came to pay the price for our sins and that through believing him, we'd be reconciled to God, that there is a way for us to be in a right standing with God through what Jesus did. He paid for our sins. He ransomed us. But that payment, that ransom price, only applies and benefits those who believe and have faith in what he has done and choose to follow him. And in some sense, belief is just a, it's a first step in a journey to following Jesus, but it's just simply the act of saying, I'm done with trying to do things my way. I want to be part of God's plan and follow him and trust him. And that is all it takes to become a Christian to begin following Jesus. So friends, if you haven't done that, I'm going to ask you if you would consider doing that this morning. So what we're going to do, it's something we don't normally do here at Crosspoint. It's a little different, but in light of this text, I feel it's appropriate. Is I'm going to have a few people that um, we've talked to beforehand on the sides of the room who are ready to talk to you. And so if you're not believing in Jesus, or maybe you just have questions, I'm not sure what it actually means to be a Christian, to be in Christ, to be saved, and how do I know, those sorts of things. Please take advantage in this next song to go have a conversation with someone who's been following Jesus for a while and can help you walk through those things. So I'm going to pray, then we're going to take the supper, and then we're going to have a chance for you to respond in that way. Please pray with me. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Um, and God, I do pray that, it's just the scriptures say, that today is the day of salvation. That today, if, if we are hearing your voice, voice, Lord, that we would not harden our hearts as Israel did but that we would soften our hearts and receive your invitation to believe in and follow you, to take our burdens and lay them upon you that we might find true rest, that we would stop striving to find our own purpose and meaning or, or approval, that we would lay those works aside and just rest and embrace the work of Jesus for us. And I pray in his name, amen.